our series is called Holidays. And in the first weekend, I shared with you how that the idea of a holiday, we get the word holiday from two words, holy day, that are put together. But I made the point that for a lot of us, the holidays don't feel all that holy. Holy means it has to do with God. And yet on the other hand, a lot of what we experience in the holidays doesn't feel very godly. And so we've talked about a couple things. I mean, we talked in the, in the first message, we talked about how to get the holy back into the holidays. And last weekend, we talked about not feeling married. Jonathan, in the second week, talked about dealing with our crazy families. But tonight, I'd like for us just to take a deep breath and step back for a moment and ask ourselves, what is it that we're doing? Because all you have to do is get out on Rock Road or 21st Street or, or West Road or any of the main thoroughfares here in Wichita, and the traffic is building up. You know, it's hard to get in and out of the shopping, you know, getting in and out of the malls and all the decorations are up and the music is playing and, and, and asking ourselves exactly what is going on here. I mean, what is, it, what is it that is behind what we're doing? I mean, sometimes I feel when I look at Christmas celebrations, kind of like the guy who saw the Grand Canyon for the first time, and he just said to nobody in particular as he looked out over that open expanse, wow, something big had to happen here. And that's kind of how I feel when I think about Christmas. I mean, I want you to consider something for a moment. Do you realize that none of our other holidays has a season, a corresponding season? We don't talk about a Thanksgiving season or a New Year's season or President's Day season or Independence Day season. Only one of our holidays has that whole season attached to it. Beyond that, it's a holiday that retail America depends on. Somewhere between 20 and 48% of the American retail year comes in during the month of December, and it's associated with this holiday that we call Christmas. Well, why do we do this? Why do we decorate? Why do we have parties? Why do we have a particular kind of music that we listen to? What, 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 what is it that makes us turn festive this time of the year? Something has got to make us do that. I think in large part, we've come to sort of assume culturally in America that it is an important date. But for those of us who are Christ followers, we understand the first six letters of the name Christmas. It is about Christ. Well, what are we going to do as a culture if we take Christ out of Christmas? What will be left over that will be worth spending money for gifts? What will be left over all the things that we go through culturally in order to experience this holiday? Because I don't know about you, but I don't feel like spending a whole lot of money and doing a whole lot of things just because the shortest day of the year has passed and the days are going to get longer. Well, I don't think I need to tell you, if you're an American, I don't need to tell you that there is a war on Christmas um, today, in public concourse, we don't talk about Christmas trees anymore. Um, we talk about holiday trees. Um, we don't have Christmas programs in school anymore. We have holiday or winter programs, if we have any programs at all. In some of our schools, we just stay away from having programs this time of year to keep from having conflict. Long ago, decades ago, nativity scenes were stripped from public places. And there is a catalog that I was looking at, my wife has the other day. It was a, it's one of those home decorations catalogs. I won't mention the name, but the initials are Pottery Barn. Um, <laughs> where it was, it was full Christmas ornaments. It, it was a Christmas catalog. And yet none of the ornaments had anything to do with Jesus. There was an ornament in there for Las Vegas, 
but nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with angels or wise men. Well, somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't really believe that there is a war on Christmas. Well, here's the deal, and I'll be real straight with you because I, I try to do that. You're either not paying attention or you're not very old because if you're over 40 years of age, you remember a world that doesn't exist like the world that we live in today. I was in high school in the 70s. We had Christmas programs. We had Christmas trees. We had programs in which I know I read Scripture in public school in programs. All of, the, all of the language, I mean, I was in a large public high school in Fort Worth with 4,000 students, and all the foreign language classes caroled in their language. I was in German class. I can still remember the, the lyrics to the carols in German. So no, I mean, you know, someone will say, well, Mark, you don't understand there is a wall of separation. I understand that Thomas Jefferson wrote that line in the defense of the Danbury Baptists, not to say that nothing in our culture can ever be remotely religious. He was just writing that line to say that no one has the right to encroach on the expression of someone who is expressing their religious faith. But somehow in America, there is a war specifically on Christ. We are living in an anti-Christ, anti-Christian era. It doesn't seem to expand to other religions. It doesn't seem even to expand to other holidays. I find that the litmus test that's given to Christmas doesn't seem to apply to other days. For instance, you know, the whole idea today is, well, we can't say that it is a holiday that celebrates Jesus because there are people with other faiths, and it might offend them. But I would make the point that if that were the basis, that we cannot celebrate New Year's, because not everybody in the world celebrates New Year's on January the 1st. There are Middle Eastern cultures, African cultures, Asian cultures that celebrate New Year's Day on a different day. So if we're trying to be inclusive, then we need to let go of New Year's Day. And there are pacifists but we still celebrate Veterans Day. To somehow imagine that we can celebrate Christmas without it being a reflection on the person of Jesus Christ, that would be like saying we're going to celebrate Dr. King's birthday, but we cannot talk about civil rights. That would make no sense. If we were going to celebrate Dr. King's birthday, we must talk about civil rights if we're going to, it would be like saying we're going to celebrate Memorial Day, but we can't talk about soldiers. But it would be pointless. And all I'm saying today is that we're, we're conflicted here in the United States. I mean, on one hand, we can't afford commercially to lose Christmas because so much of our nation's economy depends on this time of the year. And yet, on the other hand, we have this cultural anti-Christian force that is pressuring us more and more to disengage from any idea or any thought of the person of Jesus Christ. And we've got this conflict going on. It's the same thing that I watch in some of our political leaders who will champion the removal of God or Jesus or faith from the public concourse. They'll try to champion the removal of prayer from schools, but let a national tragedy happen, and some of those same leaders will stand there and encourage Americans to remember the victims in their thoughts and prayers. Am I the only one who wonders about the insanity of that kind of hypocrisy? 
But there's something else that I want to say tonight. I don't think the haters are the only ones who are struggling to figure out Christmas. Because the truth be told, I think in large part, a lot of us who are, who are people that would consider ourselves believers in God or even believers in Jesus Christ, to be honest with you, and I'm just being straight with you, I think sometimes we struggle to know what Christmas is all about. I mean, for one thing, it happened so long ago in a world we can't even imagine. And beyond that, and this is just me, I struggle with the story of Christmas because it's been so stylized and glamorized and commercialized that even as I try to look back and make sense of the coming of Jesus into our world, I can struggle with it. And beyond that, I grew up with the culture. I grew up in church. I grew up with Christmas programs where we had shepherds and wise men and glued on beards and all those kinds of things. So even for me as a God follower, I can still struggle to make sense with what Christmas is about. I can wind up holidayed. I mean, there is a Bible story, and I believe the Bible, but I also am a product of American commercialism. And so on one hand, I have Jesus. On the other hand, I have Santa Claus. On one hand, I have Mary and Joseph. On the other hand, I have the reindeer and Frosty the snowman. It is a challenge for me. So all I want to do tonight in tonight's message, and this is a message where I want to encourage you to just think with me. You may not come up with the same conclusions, and some of the things that I'm going to talk to you about tonight could really seem way out there, but I want you to think. You know, every once in a while I'll hear about someone, you know, someone will say, well, I always feel like when I go to church they want me to check my brain at the doorstep. That is the last thing I want. I would do anything just to get people to think. And that's what I want us to do tonight. I want us to think about where... Christmas came from and what it means. Suppose we were going to get clarity and I were to ask each of us, what is the meaning of Christmas? For most of us who are are people of faith, we might answer the question this way. Christmas is the birth of Jesus. Now guys, technically that's true, but that's that's not the root of what Christmas is about. I mean, birth is how he got here. But the purpose of Christmas is the coming of Jesus into our world. Just think about that that expression, that verb expression right there. It is about the coming of Jesus. One of the questions I get asked from time to time, you know, people will say, well, where did God begin? When did God have his beginning? And it's it's a flawed question. It's one of those questions where, you, you know, it's like the old, you know, It's like the old conundrum question. Because the fact of the matter is, births or beginnings or inceptions are the aberration. Eternality is the norm. You know, it would be like if pictures could talk, it would be like the picture saying to the artist, where is your frame? And the artist is saying, look, I created the picture that needed the frame. So for us to ask God, when did he have his beginning? The truth of the matter is, eternality is the norm. Beginnings are the aberration. When God created his, his world, he baked in beginnings or inceptions. So all I'm trying to say, is, it's not a miracle that God had no beginning. The miracle is that God could be born. The miracle is that God could come in flesh. So when you look at Jesus coming into our world and you see him there in that first coming, what we understand 
was that was not when Jesus began. It was not that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that was the very first time that Jesus showed up. When Jesus was on the earth, he was consistently explaining to people that he was the Messiah, that he was God in flesh. And one thing that Jesus said often that no human being could claim was that he existed before his birth. And that's so clear from Scripture. In John chapter 8, verse 58, when they were giving Jesus a hard time, he said, before Abraham was, I am. What a statement. First of all, Abraham lived around 2000 BC, and Jesus is on the earth somewhere probably around 28 AD. And so Jesus is saying, you don't understand, before Abraham was, and notice this, he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I I am which was his statement that he was eternal, that he had always been here and he would always be here in the future. In John chapter 17, the night that Jesus was arrested, and John 17 is just, every time I read this chapter, New Spring, I always get this feeling like Abraham, or excuse me, like Moses, ought to take my shoes off because I'm on holy ground. In John 17, you actually have Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prayed in the garden that night. You have one member of the Trinity talking to another member of the Trinity. It's just a very special chapter. But I want you to listen to what Jesus prayed that night. He said to God, to the Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Father, give me glory in your presence now. Listen, New Spring. The same glory I had with you before the world was made. Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. He had been here from eternity past. In fact, one of my favorite statements is that Jesus said, I saw Satan falling from heaven as a flash of lightning. Well, that happened before the world was ever created. Jesus said, I watched Satan get kicked out. So that's what I want to get across to all of us here tonight. Christmas is not the beginning of Jesus. It's, I mean, birth is how he got here. There's no doubt about that. But the newsflash is not that Jesus was born. The newsflash was that Jesus came because he was coming for a purpose. He was coming for a reason. I mean, yeah, the cuddly Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and the angels and, the, and you know, singing and all that, that's a beautiful story. But here's the thing. Let us never forget that when Jesus came into our world, he was a savior on a rescue mission. I mean, if you want to think of an image of Christ coming into our world, think about a first responder, because that is exactly what's going on. Jesus didn't come to give us a cute, fuzzy story to sing about this time of year. Jesus came into the world, well, to make us have a, to create a way for us to have a way to get back to God. Let me just give you some scriptures here. Jesus came into a world basically because Adam and Eve got into a hole they couldn't get out of. When Adam and Eve sinned against God and God showed up, if there was a way that Adam and Eve could have gotten out of their own hole, God would have said, do X, Y, and Z, but he didn't. God, from the very beginning, this is in the book of Genesis chapter 3, God said, I'm going to make a way for you to get back to me. And it was in that chapter that for the very first time, God promised that Jesus would come. By the way, do you know who God was talking to the first time he said that Jesus would come into the world? It wasn't Adam, and it wasn't Eve. Believe it or not, it was Satan. And I'm not trying to be too cute here, but I'm just telling you, basically Satan was standing there leering at God saying, I blew up your world. You put your man and your woman here, you put your creation here, 
I got them to rebel against you. I blew up your world. And not only that, I didn't wait till they have kids. I blew up your world with the first couple. So consequently, any kid they have is warped now. So God, I blew up your world. Ha <laughs> I got you. And that's the first time that God said anything about his plan to send his son into the world. By the way, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Satan, because you've done this, you're cursed. This is beautiful to me. On that day when our first parents sinned, God cursed Satan and he cursed the ground, but he didn't curse Adam and Eve. But in verse 15, God said to Satan, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I don't like to use theological terms, but let me just give you a word that you can just tell your friends that you learned in church this week. It's the word proto-evangelium, okay? Bet you haven't used that 10 times in the last few days. It just means first gospel. Do you know the first time the gospel was given in the Bible is in this particular verse, and it was God giving it to Satan. And basically God was saying, look, you think you've caused hostility between my creation and me. I'm going to create hostility between the seed of the woman and you. And I love this line, and I've always loved it. God said to Satan, you will strike at his heel, and he will crush your head. I always think that's a reference to Calvary, to the cross where Jesus died. Because on the cross, it is as if Satan inflicted a temporary wound on Jesus. He afflicted Jesus' heel. But on the cross, Jesus crushed his head forevermore. Listen, the battle to see whether or not Satan is defeated is already over. It was settled long ago. He is a defeated foe. He is just running out the clock. The game is really already over. But that's the first time that God promised that Jesus would come into the world. To Adam and Eve, it was a message that they could be forgiven. To Satan, it was a declaration of war. But church, watch. Notice that God did not say to Adam and Eve that their offspring would defeat Satan. And again, this is more theology than you may want. And yet it's so vital to what Christmas is all about. His promise was to Eve, not to Adam and Eve. Because now Adam fathered a broken race. And everyone, and by the way, all the ladies in this room, you will have suspicioned this all along anyway, the sin nature is passed down through the father. That is why God had to get his son into the world without a human father. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, the Bible says, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because the other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So that's the first time the gospel was ever given. In the Garden of Eden, on the day that our first parents sinned. But it wasn't the last time. If you're holding a Bible in your lap, you could, you could separate the Bible into the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first two-thirds or so of your Bible is the Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi, 39 books. The second part of your Bible is called the New Testament. It begins at Matthew and goes to Revelation, 27 books. So if you had your Bible separated in those two sections... What the left side of your Bible says is he's coming. What the right side of your Bible says is he's here, and the end of it says he's coming back again. So I want you to think for a few moments with me about the promises that God had made through time in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus, because God gave all kinds of specific information about the coming of Jesus before it happened. Now, here's the thing. The best that our media can do is tell us what has happened, and they're not always good at doing that. 
But the one thing about the book that you hold in your lap, if you have a Bible, is it's filled with prophecies in which the Bible tells us what is going to happen. And no other book can do that. Um, for instance, 1,700 years before Jesus was born, it was prophesied that he would be from the tribe of Judah, Genesis uh, 49, 17. Um, uh, 1,400 years before Jesus was born, it was written that his birth would be associated with a special star, Numbers 24, 17. Um, it was prophesied 1,000 years before Jesus was born that he would die by crucifixion, but he wouldn't stay in his grave. That's in Psalm 22, in Psalm 24. Interestingly enough, that was written some 300 years before the Carthaginians invented crucifixion. It was prophesied that he'd be born to a virgin 750 years before Jesus was born. That he would be born in Bethlehem by the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5 to 500 years before he was born. And in the most scintillating of all the prophecies, 475 years before Jesus was born, Daniel prophesied not only that he would come, but when he would be born. Daniel gives us a timetable, which is why the wise men followed a star. They got the, the wise men from Babylon. They had been coached up by Daniel back in his generation centuries before. They knew his birth was going to be associated with a star, and they had a timetable. They had Daniel's timetable. That's why when they saw the star, they said, it's time. All these things are in the Bible. I mean, God had said over and over and over, and I'm just giving you a handful of all these delicious prophecies in the Bible where God is saying, look, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to make a way for you to have a relationship with God. Broken, flawed people like Adam and Eve, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve of every race, God is saying, I'm going to make a way for you to get back right with me, and I'm going to make that way by sending my son into the world. It's sort of interesting, though, when you look at all these prophecies about the birth of Jesus or the coming of Jesus into our world, all of a sudden, about 400 years before Jesus is born, it gets quiet. It just goes radio silent. And there are no prophecies. And during that time, Alexander the Great conquers the world, and then, of course, his empire disintegrates after, after his descendants couldn't handle things. And then along comes uh, Julius Caesar, and about 40 years before Jesus is born, there's no question that Rome rules the world. You know, I'm saying all this for a reason because, you know, if you and I are feeling a little dazed right now with all the things that are going on in our world, I want you to understand that as crazy as things feel right now in America, it felt about that way when Jesus was born. They had 4,000 years that prophesied that he was coming and yet, right before Jesus was born in the Jewish world, Roman soldiers were marching up and down the streets. They had a king, but he wasn't a Jewish king. Rome had installed him. He was actually an Idumean because he was a drinking buddy with the Caesars. And the big news about the time that Jesus was born was that the government of Rome was increasing scrutiny. They were a little concerned that they had information on everybody. So they determined that everybody in the Roman Empire should go back to the place where they were born so Rome could come up with some... Some data on everybody. Isn't that curious? That right at the time Jesus was born, it was crazy. There had been radio silence in regard to prophecies for 400 years. Rome ruled the world. The Jewish people had long ago given up on having their own nation. And they had a fake king. And beyond that, the government was tightening down scrutiny. You know what gets to me, though, about the first Christmas? was even though everything was nuts and everything was crazy, all that time God was right on schedule. In fact, 
even in that census, there was a young peasant couple, she very pregnant. They were making their way from one nowhere town, Nazareth, to another nowhere town, Bethlehem. They were the kind of people that you would look right through. The Bethlehem was overcrowded. They put them in a barn. I mean, there was nobody's from no place going nowhere. And yet in all of that days, here's the thing that gets to me. This is where I want to go in tonight's talk. That were a handful of people who were looking for him. You can read this in the Gospel of Matthew, partially, and then you can read part of it in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, I love reading about a couple of elderly people. That even though the world was going crazy, here's the thing I love about Simeon and Anna. All the nutty stuff that was happening with Rome was just background noise. They were looking for Jesus to come into the world. Simeon was an elderly man. And I don't know, he just walked with God and, and somehow God had communicated to him that he wouldn't die before Jesus came. I don't know how he did that. Get to heaven, we'll find out. But it could also be because Simeon had Daniel's prophecy and Simeon could look at the clock and know that it was time for the Messiah to be born. So whatever, he was like waiting for Jesus to be born. So when Mary and Joseph take their newborn baby Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, Simeon is there and when he sees him, he says, God, let me go. I can go home now in peace because I've seen your salvation. While he was there, there was an elderly woman named Anna. We don't know exactly how old Anna was because the language is kind of hard to parse. She was either a woman who had been a widow for 84 years and she was probably about 105, or maybe the Bible is saying she was 84 years and she 84 years old and she'd been a widow since she was very young. I'm not sure. But we do know this. Anna was there believing that Jesus was going to come into the world, and when she saw Mary and Joseph interacting with Simeon, she went and told everybody that the Christ child had been born. So that just stands out to me. That in a world going crazy, you got some people that all the craziness of the world is background noise because the big story is that Jesus is coming. And oh yeah, we always say they were three and they were kings. We don't know how many they were. We just know they were magi and they came from Babylon. And when they saw the star, it didn't matter what was going on in Rome. They were headed for Jerusalem to see the Christ child. And that's the story. But to be honest, in 2015, it's been 6,000 years since the first promise and 2,000 years since he was born. And as I said earlier, the world that Jesus was born into and the world that you and I live in today don't bear any resemblance. We have all kinds of inventions that they didn't have back then. We know so much from science. We have all the advances in medicine, travel, communications, and then beyond that, who can make sense of the world that we live in right now? We have nations like Iran and North Korea building up a nuclear threat. We have the decline of our own nation. Our own nation is $19 trillion in debt. If you're a taxpayer, congratulations. You owe $158,000 more than you think you owe. We have ISIS attacking in Paris and killing over 100 people. We have an attack in California. We're still trying to make sense of that. We don't even know if there are terror cells in our own nation. Sometimes we have riots in our street. We have the breakup of the family in America. How, how do you celebrate? That's what I'm asking you. How do you celebrate Christmas? How do you make sense of Christmas in a crazy world like that? How do you look back 2,000 years 
to a story that happened in Bethlehem with a peasant couple and a baby. How do you look back on that and have it make sense? Maybe we need to turn around. Because you see, the truth of the matter is, although we may be 2,000 years from his first coming, we are probably right at the door of his second coming. And if in the craziness of the world of the first century, there were a handful of people who are saying the craziness is just background noise, I'm looking for Jesus, perhaps it would be wise for some of us who are wise men and wise women in 2015 to say, it's a long time since Jesus came the first time, but it may be today that he's coming the second time. Well, here's the thing I'd like to do. I'd just like to ask for your indulgence in the next few moments. And I know this is an unusual message, but here's the thing. You and I have already, we've chronicled through a handful of the promises that God gave from the beginning that said, my son is coming, my son is coming, my son is coming. Well, let's do something for a few moments. Let's talk about some of the things that are going to happen in the future because I would call to your attention that Jesus said in John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that wherever I am, there you may be also. So please understand, Bethlehem was not the only time Jesus is coming. He is coming back. So if we've seen the signs of his first coming, what are the signs of his second coming? Well, there are a ton of them, but I want to just give you a handful so that you and I can realize that we're probably right at the very brink of Jesus' next arrival. There is perhaps no greater sign, at least no sign of Jesus' return in the Bible that's more prolifically given in the Bible than the the return of the nation of Israel. Please understand, the Bible is a Jewish book. It begins with the story of Israel. It goes into the New Testament. The very first believers were Jewish believers, and then the message went to the whole world, including all of us. But God works through the nation of Israel. And beginning, really, I guess, about 586 B.C., when the, Northern, when the southern kingdom went into captivity, from 586 B.C. for 2,500 years, Israel was not a sovereign nation. But when you read the prophets, and this is all throughout the books of Isaiah and Zechariah and um, Malachi, so many of the prophets, Jeremiah, God is always talking about how that he's going to bring Israel back. In fact, one of my favorite texts on that point is in Ezekiel chapter 37 where God calls the prophet Ezekiel Boy, Ezekiel was an odd dude. That's just an interesting book to look at. God calls Ezekiel down to the cemetery. And Ezekiel doesn't know what's going on. And God says, I want you to preach. And, and, and Ezekiel said, who do you want me to preach to? And God said, preach to the bones. Now I preached to some dead churches before, but nothing like that. But anyway, Ezekiel was given a vision. And here's the point I want to raise. This is Ezekiel 37, verse 10. Breath came into their bodies, they all came to life, stood up on their feet, a great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, We've become old, dry bones, our hope is gone, our nation is finished. Therefore prophesy to them and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Ezekiel 37, verse 21, I will gather the people of Israel from among the nations. I will bring them home to their own land from the places where they have been scattered. There's actually a word for that called a diaspora. The Jews were dispersed all over the world. But after the Holocaust, they really began to move back to Palestine. 
1948, some 2,500 years after the southern kingdom went into captivity in 586 B.C., in 1948, some of you were alive during that time, Israel became a sovereign nation again. President Harry Truman of the United States was the first foreign dignitary to, rep to recognize the nation of Israel. In 1967, Gamal Abdar, Abdar, uh, Abdul Nasser, who was president of Egypt, decided he was going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And they attacked Israel in what was called the Six-Day War. And by the time it was over, Israel had not only defeated Egypt, but they had gotten back the entire city of Jerusalem, just like God said they were going to do 2,500 years before. And if you, like me, were alive in 1967, you saw the most important prophetic point of Jesus' return right there. So interesting that God would say to Ezekiel 2,500 years ago that I will raise Israel up again to be an exceedingly powerful army. Today, Israel is considered to have perhaps the fourth or fifth most powerful army in the world, a nation of 8 million people. When we think about the coming of Jesus, there are all kinds of signs. Some of them are national, like the nation of Israel, but some of them have to do with wickedness in our world. Jesus said right before his return, things would be as they were in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Well, what were the days of Noah like? Well, in Genesis 6, it says everything people thought about was consistently and totally evil. God was sorry he made them. It broke his heart that he made people because all their minds were on was consistently evil continually. And then in the times of Lot, the Bible says they were haughty and did detestable things. And so I don't think you and I need explanation on days of Noah, days of Lot. Certainly that's the world we live in. I'm going to go through these quickly. The Bible says in the last days there will be global conflict, revolutions and wars. It's certainly true. <laughs> Number four, there will be earthquakes in strange places. We'll set that one aside. Probably one of the things I watch the most, and when I'm thinking about the return of Jesus Christ, I watch Russia and Iran because Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 tell about an invasion of Israel of a coalition that's headed by Russia and Iran. And if you're watching the Middle East, this is the, honestly, guys, I've been watching for this ever since I was a kid. This is the first time everything is lined up perfectly for that, and it's all over Syria. But the Bible tells us that there will be an invasion that will be led by Russia and Iran, the invasion of Israel. I think it's personally, and this is just me talking, and maybe I'm, this is like drinking from a fire hose. I think it's the beginning of the tribulation. I think it's what you're reading about in the first part of Revelation chapter 6. The Bible tells us that it'll be a time when people are very selfish. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, In the last days there will be difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. Good morning, America. How are you? They will be unloving and forgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. One of my favorite prophecies of the coming of Jesus is in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 4, because I think it's so right up front with where we are. The Bible says there will be an explosion of information, and yet people will be at their wit's end, Daniel 12, 4. Isn't that something? I mean, more information than ever, and yet people at their wit's end. It's like it, the Bible says they're like going back and forth, like, a, like someone running back and forth in the hopes of finding some kind of meaning or answer. And I don't need to tell you this if you know anything about Bible prophecy, but you know the Bible says in the last days there will be a one-world government headed by someone who's known as the Antichrist. All my life, people have asked me who the Antichrist is. Does it matter? 
We just know this. He is anti-Christ, and there is a one-world government at the end that is anti-Christ. Anybody who can't see that coming right now probably needs to take another look. And then when I was a kid listening to my dad talk about these topics, my dad used to use a verse, and, and I, I was always a little contrary, and I had a little trouble with this. In Revelation chapter 13, the Bible talks about the last days and the Antichrist, and it says he required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark. And I used to listen to my dad preach that. I think there's no way in the world. How would a mark have anything to do with commerce? Well, I just didn't understand technology when I was 10 years old. I do today. It's easy. We're just talking about some kind of prefix. I mean, right now, I mean, if anyone could solve the identity theft problem in our world today, we could save all kinds of money, make all the sense in the world. Guys, I don't want to get into this tonight. I mean, maybe someday we'll do a series on prophecy. All I just want to say is, do you see... Do you see the similarity between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus? In the first coming of Jesus, God had been saying for thousands of years, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, here are the signs of his coming. And yet when he came, the world was going crazy. But in the midst of this craziness, there were a handful of people that all the craziness was just background noise because the big news was that Jesus is coming. Well, here we are again, and it's been thousands of years, and God has been saying he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, here are the signs. Here's the timetable. I mean, for all those of us who've lived in the 20th century, we've seen Israel become a nation again. We've seen all these things happening. We're watching Iran and Russia form a coalition. All these prophecies. And yet I wonder, are there some wise women here? Are there some wise men who would say, in the midst of all the craziness, the news story is, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. You know, I talked about Christmas music. The quintessential Christmas music is Handel's Messiah. And I don't know how much you know. You may know even more about this than I know, but Handel wrote back in the 18th century, and basically what Handel came across, this will be interesting to you, I think, what Handel came across is some of the same prophecies that we've been reading tonight. And Handel looked at, there were, there were actually three parts to the Messiah. The prophecies from the Old Testament that talk about the birth of Jesus the life of Jesus, and then the prophecies that talk about his second coming. By the way, do you know where the Hallelujah Chorus comes from? It comes from Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. Because in the worst part of the tribulation, there is an announcement from heaven in which one of the angels just says, the kingdoms of this world have just become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that's when Handel wrote the Hallelujah Chorus. Handel said, I didn't feel that I did Heaven did open, and I didn't see the great God see him face to face. It's all God's story. And when Jesus comes into our world, he comes in for a reason. And guys, in simple terms, the first time he came, he came to make individuals right. When Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned against God, they fell. There's a disconnect between man and God. Jesus came the first time to fix what's wrong between you and me and God. Which is why there are some of us here tonight, in fact, many of us here tonight, that things are okay between us and God, but we still live in a broken world. Am I right about that? I mean, see, that's the thing. The first time he came was to make us 
make, it, make a way for you and me individually to have a relationship with God. The first time he came, he came to fix what was broken between you and me and God. The next time he comes, he will come to fix a broken world. And we'll get a chance to see what this place was meant to be from the very beginning. I am so pumped to give you the good news that Jesus Christ, who came 2,000 years ago, is coming again. And if it's a little fuzzy when you look back, then just turn around because we're about to see him come again. Thank you very much. God bless you.